This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. So I asked JT Trollman, a product designer at Facebook, what's the biggest challenge he's faced with when designing for the platform? Man, you know, the biggest challenge uh, designing for Facebook is that at some point, you know, at some point, you're always right. You're always going to create an assumption uh, that ends up just not panning out. So the biggest challenge is, you know, there's just a ton of value in creating hypotheses you want to validate and then testing them in real world settings to see how people react uh, across cultures, across demographics and so on. That's when you find the really good ideas. Good ideas pay off. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp for marketing automation and email newsletters. MailChimp makes it pretty easy for businesses to not only send better email, but to make something beautiful and connect directly with their customers. Take a look at what you can do at inspiration.mailchimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it easy for you to find that domain name and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're still holding steady at 35 patrons. That's for a combined total of $247 per month. Again, a huge thanks for everyone that has already pledged your support for the show. Really does mean a lot. I would love to get up to at least... $250 a month. So I know that those, some of you are out there listening. If one of you wants to pledge at that $3 a month level, that would be awesome. I'd really appreciate that, especially leading up to our 150th episode. So if you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some really great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, and free Revision Path swag, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge level started just $1 per month, and it's a really great way to support the show on a regular basis. Now let's go on to this week's interview. I'm talking with creativity evangelist Denise Jacobs. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Okay, my name is Denise Jacobs, and I am a speaker, author, and creativity evangelist. Now, for those that are out there listening, please tell us what it is that a creativity evangelist does. (laughs) Well, mainly speak and conduct trainings and write articles and books on creativity, the creative process, and how people can develop creativity as a skill to help basically make their work, their kind of day-to-day work better, but then also to enhance their careers and their professions. How did you get started along this path to being a creativity evangelist? So I wrote a book back in 2009 and 2010 that came out in 2010 called The CSS Detective Guide. And I was predominantly a front-end developer and designer. And 
during the process of writing that book, I really struggled a lot with imposter syndrome and really struggled with seeing myself as a creative person and everything. And finally, at the end of writing the book, when I was in the process of uh, designing the website for the book, I finally had this moment of what I like to think of as criticism-free creating, where I finally like just got into like creative zone, got into the flow, and it was like the first time that I stopped criticizing myself and just let myself make something, and it was like the most amazing feeling that I had experienced. It was like being in love, you know, that kind of heady, like, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing ever. I can't believe this person likes me and I really like them and all this stuff, except mm -hmm. for it was like myself. <laughs> and when I kind of came out of that or, you know, woke up in the morning from that, I was like, this is the most amazing feeling. And, and it's not dependent upon anybody else. It's all, you know, really like dependent on just yourself and internal things. And I thought if I could help other people feel like that, that's what I want to do with my life. Like I want to help people feel like this, get all of the blocks out of the way of the creative process so that you just get into creative flow and you just feel amazing and you feel like not only can you do what you set out to do, but you can do anything like there's even more that you can do that you don't even know that you're capable of. And so that's kind of how I got started. And so that kind of planted the seed that morning. I called my mother and I was talking to her and I was like excited and crying and happy and all the stuff at the same time. And she's like, what's going on? What's happening? And I was like, mom, I think I figured out what I want to do with my life. And she was like, what? And I was like, I feel like what I want to do is I want to like, spread the gospel of creativity. Like I want to spread the good word of creativity. Like I want to be like, like I want to evangelize it like a creativity evangelist. Oh. And I was like, what? So I got the phone with her, <laughs> ran to my computer, got on godaddy.com. It was like creativity evangelist.com. It was like, it's available. And I was like, no, it's not. Boom. And I bought it. <laughs> and I also did a search for creativity evangelists online. And like pretty much nothing, nobody was calling themselves that. And I was like, great, that is who I am. And it was one of those things where I didn't know what it meant, what it looked like, how I was going to, I was like, how am I going to make money from this? Like, how can I like justifiably make this my job title? And so I honestly, I actually had the whole idea and everything. And I just basically sat on it for about a year because at that point I was also trying to launch myself as a speaker. And you're probably going to ask me this question. So I'm going to just tell you the story anyway, if that's okay. okay. Um, yeah, go ahead. So, you know, this is kind of concurrent with me working to become a speaker, which you know, I had basically, I met, you're familiar with Molly Holtschlag, right? Oh, yeah. She's the, the fairy godmother of right? the web. Exactly. So <laughs> I had met her several years previous at a conference. In 2005, I met her at a conference because I went to the conference specifically to see her speak. I had never been to a web conference or any other conference. Well, I had never been to a web conference at that time, by that point. 
even though I've been working in the industry for several years. And I had taught web design and web development at Seattle Central Community College, and I used her books as textbooks for some of my classes. So I was like total fangirl. And Mm -hmm. when I saw her speaking at the conference, I realized that she and I essentially did the same thing. And not only did we do the same thing in talking about front-end development and HTML and CSS and all of that stuff, but we also did it in a really similar way, like the kinds of jokes that she was saying and the kind of asides she was making and everything. And I was like, oh, my God, wait a minute. You mean I can do the exact same thing I do in front of 25 people, except for I could do it in front of 250 people or 500 people or 1,000 people and like say it once and be done and not have to grade homework? Where do I sign up? <laughs> right. Right. So that kind of is how I started thinking, oh, I really want to be a speaker and kind of get on the web design conference circuit and do that whole thing. So fast forward to 2010, I finally have written my book, which I did in a lot of ways, specifically so that I could become a speaker. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Crazy. Right. And so then I finally had this book behind me. And I finally felt like I had like authority behind me. And so after that, I started actually submitting to conferences and like saying, hey, yeah, I can do this talk on the graceful degradation of CSS, you know, and how you can make websites look the same on multiple browsers and all of the tricks and hacks and stuff. And that's what my whole book was about and like troubleshooting CSS and everything. So I started submitting to CFPs and stuff like that for conferences. And then I just started speaking at a lot of conferences the first year. But my thinking was, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do this until I start having kind of a reputation as a good speaker. And then once people are inviting me to speak at conferences, then I'm going to start like talking about creativity instead of CSS. And so that's what I did. And I'm sure you're familiar with this person, you know, Aaron Walter, who Mm -hmm. works at MailChimp and everything. So a lot of people, if they're not paying super close attention to his career because they have things like lives and stuff like that, may not know this. But Aaron's first book was on findable websites, how to build a findable website. And it was all on website findability and SEO and all of this stuff. And you're like silent, which means that you may not have known that yourself. No, I didn't know that. So exactly. And that's because once he glommed on to emotional design, he became Mr. Emotional Design, right? Nobody knows him as Mr. Findable Websites. Everybody knows him as Emotional Design. And I was like, well, shit, if Aaron Walter can go from Findable Websites to Emotional Design, then I don't know why I can't be the... CSS detective and be the creativity (laughs) evangelist. And Uh so basically once I started talking about, I started transitioning my content like a year later and I started like, when people said, Hey, can you come and speak at this conference? I'd be like, sure. What would you like me to talk about? Well, what would you like to talk about? Well, I have this really great new talk called the art of discipline creativity. And it's about how you can use creativity and like develop the skill as a discipline, like athletes develop their skill. And, and they're like, that sounds great. I'm like, okay. And, and then I had another talk, which was called inspiration on demand. And it was like how to like get inspiration at a moment's notice and creative inspiration. And that 
became like popular. And so those started being the two creativity talks that I would promote to people. And so when they wanted CSS, I'd be like, I could do that. But what about these talks? Mm. They were like, oh, ooh. I was like, well, I talked to, you know, like at the time I, I had met Jeffrey Steldman and I was, we had been kind of talking about me trying potentially talking at an, an event apart. And so I said that to one person. He goes, well, if Jeffrey Selbin wants it, then I want it. And I'm like, great. <laughs> <laughs> and so then that's kind of what happened. So, like I said, it was kind of concurrent. The whole thing of me kind of transitioning to a creativity evangelist. At some point, I started just putting it on my business cards and being like, this is mm-hmm. just what I do. Like, you know speaker, author, web designer, creativity evangelist. And then I got to the point where I stopped doing web designer, so I stopped saying that, and I was like, this is the truth. Speaker, author, creativity evangelist. Boom. That's what it is. Was it hard? I mean, it, well, it, it sounds like it was easy, the transition, but was it hard for you to kind of, I guess, not cast away, but it almost sounds like that, like not talk about CSS and design and just focus on this new thing, was that kind of a, a big shift for you? No, because I was tired of it. In all honesty, oh, okay. I was like, I got to the point where I was just so burnt out. You know, I've been doing web stuff since 1996. I taught myself HTML at the end of 1996 and then started taking over, maintaining the website of the research department that I worked at at the University of Washington in 1997. And started working at Microsoft in 1997, contracting on a, an app that had a HTML interface, which at the time was seen like a new cutting edge thing. And like, I've been messing around with HTML and then started messing around with CSS in the early 2000s when I started teaching it and everything. Like, listen, by the time 2011 <laughs> came around, I was just like, yeah, this is fine. And then and 2010, in the middle of 2010, was when responsive design started taking over, right? Yeah. And so all of a sudden, all the things that I had been basically trained or that I really knew backwards and forwards started to really shift. And I was trying to shift with responsive design, 18 and 19 and 20, mm-hmm. who they were just like, oh, I just came out like Leia Veru started becoming on the scene. And she'd be like, oh, I just created this tool that you can make to create new so-and-so with and I'd be like I was like I don't even know where to begin to start with doing something like that like uh-huh. there is no way that I can keep up in this industry like I am already like obsolete. my book came out and it was practically obsolete when it came out and I was like I just can't keep up with this and I was like plus I'm way more interested in reading articles and doing research and reading books and coming up with presentations and stuff on creativity and the creative process. Like this is like infinitely more interesting to me than trying to keep up with something that I've been doing for a really long time and I'm losing interest in. So the transition for me was not difficult at all. As a matter of fact, I had a moment in 2000, like I kept trying to do stuff and it became increasingly more painful. I would do I was doing these freelance projects and they were always taking like way longer than I projected and it always took way more stuff and I was second guessing myself and I was like, this is just painful. And then I finally had this huge consulting CSS refactoring project, which sounds about as exciting as it, I mean, it was about as exciting as it sounds. 
<laughs> and I was doing this huge refactoring project and I actually decided to outsource the actual refactoring because I was like, I just don't want to touch CSS anymore. And I was writing up this like huge like report on, I did an audit of like all the CSS on their site and examples of how crappy it was and how we could make it better and all this stuff. And I was just writing the report and it was so painful. And I was like, just wanted to cry. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I was like, I don't even want to do this anymore. I was like, once this project is over, this is the last one. Like, I am not touching CSS after this at all. Somebody asked me to do a CSS talk. The answer is no. I do creativity talks in the story. It wasn't wow. that clean cut. It took about six months from like that decision. But when I made the decision, it was like this weight had been lifted off of my shoulders and I just felt like, oh, my God, OK, like I get to actually do what I want to do. And the irony is, and this is something that I think is really might be really helpful for people who are listening, is that I guess the irony or maybe it's not surprising at all. But I have been more successful doing this stuff around creativity, which I didn't even know how it was going to make profitable. I have made more money doing this work than I ever did doing front-end development, ever. Like, those were the absolute poorest years of my life. And I made more money last year speaking about creativity and doing trainings and whatnot than I did when I had my big project management job at an open-source CMS company. Like I, wow. I pulled in more money. Like I'm saying gross, not net. Right. Because I got, a, <laughs> I got a mortgage, but in terms of like gross, like it's more than my salary was than my gross salary was. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, when people are just like, Oh, don't do what you love. Like that's not a real thing. And I'm like, uh, yeah, it's real. It's real. Like the thing that you're really good at and the thing that you do naturally and easily, and that feels like it's not even, it doesn't feel like work, that's the point. Like, yeah. you're supposed to do the thing that comes naturally to you. I'm not saying don't work, I'm not saying don't put effort towards stuff, but teaching and speaking comes naturally to me, and I'm so grateful that I discovered it, and I'm just so grateful that it gives me so much pleasure you know, I have done it for free. <laughs> I'm glad that I don't have to do it for free anymore. But it's like, I love it. And it's something that it's, it's like I have kind of an infinite amount of reserve to put time and energy towards. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I've been taking improv classes for the last two years, almost, it'll be two years in July. And I've moved through like all the levels and now I'm doing like an independent, like totally different style of improv, improvisation. And it's great. And it's like, yeah, this is business development training because having the skill of being able to improv is invaluable as a speaker, right? Like you need to know how to recover. You need to know how to trust yourself. You need to know how to work with what you've got. And it's been amazing. And it's like, yeah, I've just... I just want to keep doing this stuff. Well, yeah, it sounds like you really knew what your strengths were and you, you played to, I don't want to say play to those, but you focused on what those strengths were and it's been both personally and financially profitable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you always kind of have a feeling 
that those were what your strengths were or like how did you discover kind of this is what I'm really good at? Huh. And the reason that I'm asking that is because I know we've got a lot of listeners that particularly designers and, you know, present company included here mm. that can do a lot of different things. Right. But it's like, how do you narrow that down to these are the things that I guess I'm the best at that I should do and not focus on maybe the like other stuff, if that makes any sense. You know, one of the main tests for me is how much pleasure I get from it, if that makes any sense. So I came to teaching and speaking and kind of conducting trainings, which to me all kind of are kind of the same thing, kind of just different formats or, you know, different size audiences, but it's basically the same stuff. I used to have a small soap making business where I made handmade herbal soaps. Mm -hmm. And I was on this women's technical networking networking as in personal networking, like professional networking, not like IT networking, this women's networking group called Seattle Web Girls, which then became Digital Eve. And when I would make a batch of soap, I would get on Digital Eve, I'd be like, hey, you guys, I've got like 18 bars of soap. Here's the flavor. Here's the description. If anybody wants a bar, let me know. And we'll figure out, you know, we'll fig I'll figure out how to get it to you. And so people would do that. And then a couple people wrote me and said, hey, like, how do you make soap? Like, what's in it? And I'll be like, oh, dude, it's like, it's super easy to make. I can, I can show you how to make it. And then people are like, oh, yeah, I'd be really interested in that. And then I was like, well, shoot, if I got like two or three people, maybe I can get a couple more people. So I announced it on the list. I had like five or six people come over to my house, make a batch of soap. I taught them how to do it. I had them pay me like 30 bucks for supplies and whatnot. It's like, you know, it's essential oils, which aren't cheap and, you know, the base oils and everything. And everybody had a good time. And I was like, oh, wait. Let me I'll try this again. And so I did it again. And then I was like, oh, wait, if I did like 20 people instead of like five or six and I charged them like $40 instead of 30, like that's a pretty good, you know, like turn for like three or four hours of work. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so then I started teaching these classes through the University of Washington Experimental College, which is like an adult ed extension program that they have. And it became like a really popular class. The first time I had the class listed, they told me I should only have one class listed. I was like, well, I wanted to list two classes. They're like, no, 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 just do one class because it's better to have one almost full class than two like not full enough classes. That's bad. I was like, okay. So I had 22 spots in the class. Three weeks after the flyer went out, they called me and they were like, um, so yeah, your class is full and has a waiting list of 16 people. So do you want to open up another another section? I was like, <laughs> yep. So after that, I always had two sections a quarter. And I taught these classes. So the very first class that I did, I didn't have enough sleep. I was staying up making the flyer, the, the handout to do in the class. I had to gather up everything. I went to the building. I didn't know it had an elevator. So I had like, if you can imagine, like 12 boxes full of supplies and everything that I like hauled up like three flights of stairs with like oh, wow. an hour's worth of sleep. And like, I'm trying to set everything up. It's the first time I'm doing it. So I don't really even know like how it's going to work. Mm -hmm. Finally, everybody shows up and it was like, I was on. And that three hours went by so fast. 
And I had so much fun and I didn't even feel like I hadn't slept the night before or anything. And then afterwards, after everybody left, it was just like, I was just like, oh my God, that was amazing. As a matter of fact, I think I was so moved by it that I probably like cried, which I do really easily. And I was just like, that was amazing. Like, and I felt it was one of these situations where I felt like it was the true me came out. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I felt like I was really finally me. And I had this opportunity to be the best version of myself. And that's what I feel like when I speak. When I get on stage and I do a keynote, it's like I am like the biggest, brightest, most fabulous version of myself. And that's when I knew that I was just like, I love this. Like, I love teaching classes. And so I started teaching, you know, a couple of years later, I started teaching classes at Seattle Central Community College. And the same thing. It was just like, I loved having the students there. I loved having the audience. I loved talking, you know, teaching about different, the different subjects and making jokes and getting people involved and helping them go through this process of learning and then a few years later, when I saw Molly Holtschlag on stage and I was like, wait a minute, you mean I can do <laughs> exactly the same thing that I'm doing, except for I can be like in front of like a whole bunch of people. I was like, stages do not scare me. OK, let, let me just let's just get it straight. Like I'm a six foot one black woman, like <laughs> people are going to look at me anyway. So might as well just have everybody looking at me at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so when I did my first like major speaking I was I was nervous it was at the feature of web design in London and uh that was my first major speaking engagement I'm south by southwest I'm not counting that because that was a different thing mm -hmm. it was like a panel it's like it's different when it's a panel and I was nervous and everything but I was like yep this is my jam this is it this is the thing this is it and then when I started actually doing keynotes I was like this is my jam. Like, this is the truth right here. This thing right here, this is it. This is the move for me. Yes. Yes to all of this. <laughs> now, I know that we've got listeners out there that, you know, they want to speak at conferences or they want to, I guess, sort of know how they can break into starting to talk at conferences. And I know that now, I think as opposed to a few years ago, there's so many different types of conferences there's different sizes of conferences you have mm -hmm. really really big ones like future web design like you mentioned mm -hmm. but you also have smaller ones and maybe niche areas like conference on ux conference on email design conference on content strategy things like that how do you find the opportunities to speak like what is that process like for you i will talk about what the process was like for me at the beginning because at this point now i get invited and i don't seek out the conferences i let them seek me out which may okay. be lazy but it seems to no seems, work smart not hard seems to work no, for that's... me so i'm like you know if it ain't broke don't fix it but i wouldn't focus as much on the kind of conference as much as i would focus on what information you want to put out and who you want it to go to and the other thing is too is that you don't always know who needs the information so for example when I first started talking about creativity, I envisioned working, you know, talking to designers and stuff like that. But interestingly enough, 
there were a few years where most of my invitations to, to keynote were at developer conferences. It wasn't at, it wasn't designers that wanted mm-hmm. this information. It was developers and software engineers and people like that. And I was just like, you're Java developers and you want me to talk about creativity? Like, really? And I was, I was like, okay, it's fine. Great. I, okay. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. And so start putting it forth to the kind of, you know, you probably, I always tell people to, to start making a list of the conferences that you want to speak at and be aware of when their uh, call for papers are open and also contact, get the organizers contact information and all that stuff and submit your stuff to them and, you know, and just make it like, make it like a job. You know, that's what I did in, in 2010 when I started it. I had a spreadsheet. I actually plugged the stuff into my calendar. And so I would get a notification like, hey, the thing is due tomorrow. And I'd be like, okay, today I'm working on my proposal for the conference. Mm-hmm. And then I would submit it. And then I'd wait to hear back and see if they were interested in having me speak. And sometimes a no is not a no never for the rest of your life. Amen. Maybe a no is like not this year, but probably next year. Mm -hmm. Right. And actually, incidentally, I'm going to be sometime this year, probably in the summertime, I'm going to be teaching an online live masterclass on speaking. And I'm going to cover not only uh, different techniques, different things around speaking in terms of like preparing and creating the the content arc and developing your presentation and the storyline and presenting skills and all that stuff. But I'm also going to talk about like this stuff, like how to create a whole game plan so that you can actually become a speaker. That's somebody who's speaking regularly and then start to transform that into being a sought after speaker. And the name of the course is speak up and People can sign up on my mailing list to get more information about that. If they go to my website, they can sign up on my mailing list. That sounds great. I, I definitely want to check that course out yeah. and then learn more about that. It's going to be really good. It's like a it's like a six week course, and and it's just it's really nice. It's going to be the first one is going to be live, so people can actually interact with me and get feedback on if they have videos. You know, I'll like I'll watch some of your videos and give you feedback and also feedback on slides and stuff like that and really talk a lot focus a lot on again like storytelling finding your own unique voice because Mm -hmm. that's the other thing too it's like you don't want to try to be like anybody else you need need to be uniquely yourself and that's what people are going to want whoever is that they don't want another scott hanselman scott hanselman is awesome but nobody else could be scott hanselman except for scott hanselman you know what i mean Mm -hmm. And so, you know, then it's just finding like your own unique style and then working with that and being comfortable and being comfortable in your own skin when you're on stage and just really connecting with the audience and really conveying the information and the passion that you have about what you're talking about and infusing everybody in the audience with that same excitement and passion. That sounds good. I think that's going to be a really, really good course for I mean, it, it can be for people that are just wanting to start out mm-hmm. or for people that already have a few conferences under their, belt. you know, maybe under their belt. And mm-hmm. they just want to know, how do I I'm speaking for myself here, but like, how do I go to like the next level? level? Exactly. How do yeah. Level it? Exactly. Yeah. 
So your company that you have is called The Creative Dose. Yeah. And you describe it as a creativity and innovation collective. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that. So the idea is, is that, you know, currently it's myself and then I have another woman, Jessie Sternshoes, that I work with and we do trainings and, um, and workshops for corporations. Um, eventually, I would like to get it to a place where, you know, if somebody contacts us and says, hey, I would like, you know, a training on this sort of thing, that I have basically like a, a pool of people who all kind of have different kind of specialties, like maybe somebody's really specializes in visual thinking, or maybe somebody specializes in design thinking, or maybe somebody really specializes in like conflict resolution or something like that, then we can kind of, the collective is that, that part of like pulling people from different things who have different strengths and pulling them together to be able to give these companies the kind of, the kind of trainings and the kind of uh, consulting that they need. What's a regular day like for you? Like with, <laughs> with all of the, with everything that you do, I'm just curious. Cause I mean, I know you spoke about, I mean, as we're for people that are listening, you spoke about before we started recording what's going on today, but <laughs> like typical day, what's Denise Jacobs working on? Well, right now I'm actually working on my next book, which is called Banisher Inner Critic, Identify and, and Eliminate Mental Blocks to Unleash Creativity. So it is about the way the inner critic, the multiple ways that the inner critic shows up and then techniques and methods and exercises to be able to silence your inner critic in those different realms. So if you're particularly afflicted by imposter syndrome, then I'll talk about like, well, where, how imposter syndrome shows up. And then here are, you know, several ways that you can deal with imposter syndrome. And it's kind of like a kind of a quick reference for like, if you're having a moment where you're just like, Oh, God, I'm feeling stuck, I'm procrastinating, or I'm like, my perfectionism is like out of control, or I'm comparing myself to somebody else, and I've gone into a downward spiral, and I can't get anything done. Let me just like go to this book and like, figure out if there's like some exercise I can do right now or something I can start working on to like stop that cycle so that I can actually put my focus somewhere else and get down to the work that I need to be doing. So right now I've started working, I started writing on that. The process has been a little slow because of my travel schedule. So in answer to your question, a typical day is like, it kind of depends on whether it is like in between a trip, <laughs> right before a trip, during a trip, or after a trip. Like, those are kind of like the four phases of my kind of work life and or my work days. And it really depends on where I am in the phase. So last week, last Tuesday, I got back from being gone for a week in British Columbia in Canada. And the first day uh, the day after I got there, I had a, I was opening keynote for a conference by the BC chapter of the American Marketing Association. So that day was a conference day and conference days are kind of similar in that, you know, I usually do either the open, the opening keynote or the closing keynote. And then there's events during afterwards. And then usually by the evening then I'm spent and I kind of just lay there and stare at the wall. <laughs> <afterwards>. <laughs> and then 
you know, if I'm in a city, then I typically will try to have meetings with people who live in that city to talk about potential future engagements. I ended up going to Victoria, British Columbia, to do uh, training at a friend's marketing company. So got there and kind of got you know, settled in and then did the prep for the workshop and then did the workshop the next morning and then flew back to Vancouver, had more meetings and then flew home. And so then last week, unsurprisingly enough, I ended up recovering from the trip, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, it actually seems like it seems like the the one thing that I will say about the, the speaking and the traveling and everything is that it is great. I am not going to say it's not great. It is great. But I think that there does become a time and it's a different time for everybody where there is such a thing as a saturation point. And Mm -hmm. I have personally reached my own saturation point where travel doesn't seem as exciting anymore and is more taxing on my body and my psyche than it used to be. And I think that's just because it is the accumulation of now at this point, six years solid of travel at least once or multiple times a month. So, you know, last year I would tell people, I was like, basically from March until December, I was gone at least one, but sometimes three weeks out of every single month. So imagine being gone on the average, basically half of every month, for nine months running. And some of those months were like three weeks and be like Chicago, then Vancouver, then Seattle, then come home for five days and then go to San Francisco for a week and then come home for 10 days and then go from Boston to New York to San Francisco and then home again and do another thing in Fort Lauderdale. And then, and it was crazy. So anyway, so back to what I was saying. So last week, I had jet lag and insomnia and all kinds of stuff. So I lost actually the last three days of the week trying to deal with all that stuff. Now I'm like two weeks where I'm home and then I will be gone again for like three days. And then I will have another couple of weeks where I'm home and then I'll be gone again maybe for a week and then I'll come home for a couple of days and then I'll be gone again for a week and going overseas. And so my normal trajectory is basically, it varies a lot based on my travel schedule. And the more speaking engagements I have lined up in closer succession, the more travel I do and the more kind of continuous travel I do, which, like I said, I'm actually trying not to do, trying making an effort to cut down on long trips. Last year, I had a lot of two and three week trips to multiple cities. And my goal this year is to not have as many of those. Well, yeah, I mean, aside from the travel, of course, you're also speaking and you're preparing and writing like the, it sounds like it can really take a toll. What do you do in your downtime for self-care? I've been doing a lot of binge Netflix watching. So I had a, a pretty, pretty strong Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. habit trying to get caught up on on two seasons and so I could get caught up to my housemate and her boyfriend and so we could watch it together, which I've done successfully. So I'm very proud of that. I can't remember what other I watched. I had a Gotham habit for a while and watched like the whole season in like four days or something. Mm -hmm. It's pretty ridiculous. And now I'm 
I decided that I've, I've watched enough crime and superhuman things like heroes and stuff like that. And now I'm watching a really silly show, which is new girl <laughs> <laughs> because it's silly and ridiculous. And I just need like a break of something like kind of cute and happy. And then I'm probably going to start watching. I'm probably going to start watching game of Thrones because everybody I know is watching it and talking about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that'll probably happen. <laughs> So going back to the the book for a minute, it's called Banish Your Inner Critic. Mm -hmm. Have you effectively banished your inner critic? I don't actually think that, and maybe this is false advertising, I don't necessarily think that it's something that you can banish completely. I think it's Mm -hmm. more about an increased level of awareness and a relationship with it. So it's kind of, you know, maybe more of an accurate title would be Silence Your Inner Critic, but Banish has got such a great ring to it. Yeah. But it's more about knowing when your inner critic shows up and instead of being blindsided by it, like having tools to deal with it. So for me, because I've been doing this work around the inner critic and creativity for for several years now, it's like when the inner critic shows up for me, I'm just like, oh, there you are. And sometimes it's like subtle and it's like totally manageable and sometimes it totally takes me over. And like it, I will go into like the biggest of downward spirals. But the nice thing now, instead of like before when it would happen, it would feel like this, like, what is happening? What is going on? Like I was totally fine before and now I feel like crap. Now I'd be like, okay, this is me comparing myself to other people. And I know that this is like, you know, a zero sum game and I need to just stop and start looking at where I have had my own achievements and where I can be proud of myself and where I can be self-referential, you know, and when I'm having perfectionism or if I'm procrastinating on something, I can be like, okay, I have blown this off for two weeks. Why am I blowing this off? And like this, the level of awareness has really helped me like start to change my behavior. And that's basically what I'm writing this book for is because I feel like everybody is capable of creating these really great things, but the inner critic is kind of the major block that stands between your really great ideas, you actually executing them. And I know that that has been true for me. And I know that when I had that moment, like I said, when I had that moment of absolutely criticism free creating, when I wasn't comparing myself to somebody, when I wasn't trying to make it perfect, when I wasn't blowing it off, when I was completely, utterly, totally engaged in it, that is one of the best feelings I think a person can have. I mean, I'm sure you've had that when you were designing something or you're working on something or you had the ideas for revision path and you were just like capturing everything down and you're like, oh, I could do this. I could do this. Oh, this is what this will be awesome. I could do yeah. And it's like you feel energized and you feel like full of life and you feel confident and you feel hopeful and optimistic and everything. And I mean, it's amazing. And that the studies that have been done on actually entering flow states are just phenomenal. And that, you know, people who enter flow states regularly are some of the happiest people in the world. They're some of the most productive people in the world. And they are actually more capable of getting into flow states over and over again than somebody who doesn't do it regularly 
Well, I'm like, well, shoot, sign me up for that. How can I, how can I get on that program? And that's basically the whole point of all of this is like banishing your inner critic is not like just an exercise so you could sit there and like navel gaze. It's so you can get to the other side of it so that you can get to the flow state so that you can have that amazing feeling and that you can produce something wonderful for the world. That's the point. Do you see any more books in the future that you want to write? Like maybe oh, along yeah. this topic? I've got five books planned. So the next book after Banish Your Inner Critic is going to be called Hacking the Creative Brain. And it's going to be about leveraging the neuroscience of creativity to get into a creative state more easily. Based on one of my most popular talks, actually, on slideshows for Hacking the Creative Brain have gotten like over 35,000 views. Several of them have. Wow. Yeah, it's featured as slideshow of the day and all kinds of good things. And so, and Banish Your Inner Critic has got somewhere in the neighborhood of 25, 30, something. One of the Banish Your Inner Critics has. So they're pretty popular slideshows. After Hacking the Creative Brain, I have another book that I want to do that's more of a kind of a business creativity for business and corporations called The Creativity Imperative. It's about how important creativity is for business and how people can actually start to create a culture of creativity within their organizations. After that one, uh, there's a, my next book after that is going to be called The Brain Unchained. And that book is actually based on a presentation that I created several years ago about, and it's a, it's actually a story and it's basically like a hero's journey, a brain that is oppressed and how it goes on this kind of fantastic journey with a mentor and learns how, what all of it's, it's capable of in terms of creative thinking and problem solving. And then the fifth book is called Get Unblocked. And that one will be about the six step process to getting creatively unblocked and executing upon your ideas that I developed. Wow. So you'll be busy for years to come. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I will. That is the plan. That is the plan. Now, when we spoke, when you were here in Atlanta, you spoke at a web afternoon that was in 2012, right? Yep. You were telling me about this project that you were doing that's called Rock the Web. Right. Can you tell the listeners what that's about? Yeah. So Rock the Web is basically an initiative that I started to increase the kind of diversity of people in the tech industry. I like to describe it as changing the face of the tech industry. It basically comes from my experience of going to tech conferences, designer and developer conferences, front end, back end, what have you, where I was one of a handful of women and if not the only person of color, one of even less than a handful of people of color and just getting tired of just not seeing more people like seeing myself in the crowd or seeing it in the speaker lineup or whatever. It's such a travesty because in the tech industry, we make so many products and services that touch so many people's lives. And if we're not if the group of people who is producing that is not diverse, then we're not going to be producing solutions that really speak to what people need or, you know, more people in the world actually need. So I started Rock the Web because I wanted to at least affect what I felt like I could affect a little corner 
of the world or little corner of the tech industry that I felt like I was really well-versed on affecting was speakers and authors and people who were considered kind of authorities in the tech industry. And my goal was to increase the numbers by having representatives, basically having representatives that people could see and identify with and then hope to choose to emulate. So, for example, I was telling you about Molly Holtschlag. I don't think there was any coincidence or mystery in my feeling a kindred spirit with her, with her being a woman. And had she been a brown woman, I might have felt it even more strongly. But when I saw her up on the stage doing that stuff, more so than any other guy that I'd ever seen on stage, I thought, I can do that too. And I want to have the numbers of visible tech experts increase so that other kids or other young people can see somebody and say, well, if she can do that, then I can do that too. Like we're, we're similar people, you know, like if Denise is keynoting this conference and I could probably keynote a conference someday, right? Because Mm -hmm. it is that kind of thing. Like that's how our brains work, you know, and that's how we work as social animals. I mean, one of the other examples that I use is kid president. So, you know, there's all these videos with kid president and he goes around and he talks about different things. And I'm telling you 20 years ago, like that wouldn't have even existed because they wouldn't have even (laughs) thought to have some little black kid, like a little young black boy child walking around like he's the president for kids because yeah. it wouldn't have even like it. People would have been like, um, there's not going to be black pleasant in my lifetime. <laughs> yes, there is. Yay. <laughs> and it's that sort of thing. And it's that sort of thing that is like changed, like completely changed the whole cascade of, of consequences or, or outcomes or, or events are going to happen simply by people seeing Barack Obama in the position of president. Like, even if they disagree with his politics, even if they don't think he's done a good job or anything, it just changes the way people think and it changes what they think is possible. And similarly, the more people of color we have as keynote speakers, as conference speakers, as workshop leaders, as founders of companies, as authors of books like Tiffany Brown, Tiffany B. Brown came out with a book. It was last year, I think, right? It was very mm-hmm. recently. And it's like the more people that turn over a tech book and see a brown woman's face on the back as the author will be like, oh, I can do that too. It's just that simple. What's kind of been the feedback so far from Rock the Web? You know, there's been a lot of interest in it, in all honesty, because I've been <laughs> like running all around the world speaking at conferences and trying to write a book and <laughs> like do consulting and stuff like that. I haven't really been able to put as much time and energy and effort towards it as I would like to and really grow it to the place that I would want to. And so that's kind of like my passion project that I hope to put more energy in within the next several years and actually get it to the place where, where I envisioned it. Well, you know, I, I told you before we started recording that that when you spoke to me kind of about Rock the Web, that was one of my early, really, inspirations for kind of doing Revision Path is like, 
making that platform so people can see I think Laverne Cox, she calls it an opportunity model, right? like not a role model, but seeing someone that you can sort of aspire to in terms of where they are Mm -hmm. in their career or the kind of work that they're doing, not necessarily be just like them, Mm -hmm. but to sort of kind of try to look at and emulate or appreciate the success that they've gotten. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And I'm going to actually use that, not a role model, but an opportunity model. I love that. So you've spoken, I mean, all over the world to many different types of audiences and things like that. And this is sort of kind of continuing on, you know, what the Rock the Web premise is about. Do you feel like the conversation that's around, you know, diversity in tech and I guess ostensibly design is is somewhat included in that, maybe not a lot. Do you feel like it is getting better? Yes and no. If that makes any sense, I feel like there's more awareness around diversity issues. And I feel like there are some people who are really like, and they have their hearts in the right place and everything. It's not like they're doing it because they're afraid of backlash or, or anything like that, but they're actually doing it because they genuinely feel like it's important and they feel like it is a benefit and they want to be part of that. I feel like there's a lot more awareness and push to do that. I also feel like there are weird moments where people act like it's not important and it's not necessary and everybody's on a level playing field. To which I have to say, no. And, you know, I don't know when the playing field, excuse me, I don't know when the playing field is ever going to be level. Mm -hmm. So like, let's just take that out of our thinking and start actually thinking about what's really going on and what's really necessary. But I, I feel like I've been in situations where they seem like they're, you know, I talked to the conference organizer and they're just like, yeah, we really were making an effort. We really wanted to have more women or we really, you know, we really wanted to have more people. We just wanted to be diverse and we wanted to be inclusive and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's great. I, so far, nobody's ever said to me, which I think I would probably take umbrage with if I did, if they ever said, well, you know, we're so glad we got you because we got, you know, we got like a two for one special. <laughs> it's like, Ooh. you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, and yikes. No, and, no one does say that. No, That's, thankfully, oh thankfully, nobody said that. Most of the time they say, we got you because we really wanted you. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it helps, you know, like, or they say we wanted a strong woman or, something like, I'm like, okay, that's, that's, that's great. Like, so I feel like there's more, there is more awareness and stuff like that, but I still feel like I still will go to to conferences and I am still one of very, very few people of color. and one of, you know, not that many women. So despite people's efforts and then people will say like, we're really working hard on this and we don't know what to do. Like we, we really want to make an effort to this, but we don't know where to start or we don't know what to do, or we don't know how to reach out to communities to get there to be more traction, uh-huh. help, you know, what do you tell them anything? I mean, I mean what do you do? A lot of the times I'm just, you know, like they say what they're doing and I was like, yeah, I mean, that sounds like, you know, that sounds like that should help. <laughs> You know, the the part of the other thing is, too, is that 
with traveling as much as I do and kind of being gone from home or feeling like I'm gone from home as much as I am, it's, it's, I'm, I'm actually a very difficult person to kind of try to get that information from because I don't actually feel part of many communities. Like I don't mm-hmm. really feel super connected to a lot of communities except for kind of my community, my own personal community, because I'm never really, I'm not really around enough to like get involved with things, which probably sounds awful, but it's, it's kind of the truth. It's like if you're home for two weeks and you're tired of traveling, are you going to go to try and try and go out and like get involved in the community or are you going to try to take a nap? (laughs) Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of the compromise, right? Right. It is. And so it's kind of like, you know, I personally need to kind of have my personal energy reserves replenished before I can really go out and be a part of things kind of outside of my house. And so I feel like I'm actually a difficult person, you know, like I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm your person to get that information from because I'm not really tapped in to what's going on in your city or even in my own city for, for that matter. But, you know, I'll say, well, have you thought of this? Have you thought of this? You know, have you thought of the local, you know, community colleges? Have you thought of these schools? Have you thought of going to these these high schools or these prep schools? Have you thought of going to these community centers? And usually, usually they've thought of those things. So, you know, sometimes it's just, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Okay, great. Well, there you go. Yeah. So, yeah. How do you keep motivated and inspired with all of this? I mean, what what's the thing that gives you purpose? I think what gives me purpose is I have this kind of um, – What's the word that I want? I've got like an internal motivation engine that's pretty strong. So when I, somebody, people could even call it compulsive. (laughs) People could probably even call it obsessive compulsive. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure what to call it. All I know is that when I get an idea in my head about something, I almost can't rest until it's done or until I see it to fruition, or I see it to mostly completion. So, for example, the folks that I have on my team are just like, you need to write this book. And I'm just like, of course I'm going to write this book. Do you honestly think at this point, after telling all these people and outlining it and everything, that I would not write this book? Like, I will not be able to rest until this book is done. Like, seriously. I mean, Mm -hmm. when I get a creative idea in my head or when a creative idea takes a hold of me, it's basically we're in it together until it's done with me, you know, until it's like, I'm the one who's being ridden, not the other way around, you know, like, uh, like in voodoo, like in Vodun, where like a spirit rides you until Mm -hmm. it's like, it's like, that's what I feel like when I get a creative idea, it's like, I am totally taken over by that thing until I complete it. And then it's like, thank you very much. You were wonderful. And, <laughs> and I'd be like, Oh, afterwards, like smoking a cigarette, like, Oh my God, what just happened? I don't smoke, but you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's like that. So what drives me is kind of, I guess in a way is like the creative spirit itself. And also this desire to help people. I really do. I mean, I could be completely deluded 
but I do feel like on some level, the work that I, that I do does help people. And I've had emails from people and people afterwards coming up to my, to me after the talks and saying that is exactly what I needed to hear. This, like this process totally helped me. It changed the way I think about things. It changes how I'm able to work. And when I hear stuff like that, I say, okay, good. That, that was the point. That's why I'm doing this. You know, I'm doing this because I know what it feels like to be in that state. And I know talking from other people, what it feels like for them. And if we can get, you know, just a few more people to do that, who knows what kind of things they'll create. I mean, the world's got a lot of problems and a lot of things that need to be fixed. And we're not going to do it by coming up with the same things that we've done over and over again. We're going to get to creating really good viable solutions by thinking creatively. So if I can help with that process, that's great. Are you where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? Like looking back, like say you were looking back at the beginning of your career, do you think that you would have ever been as far as you are now? One of the things that I suffer from <laughs> is that I never feel like what I've done is enough. And mm -hmm. so I have to make a very active effort to look at what I've done and to tell myself that what it is, it is good enough and that I have actually accomplished something and I have achieved something because I, I actually, I, this probably sounds totally hokey, but long time ago, probably 20 some odd years ago, I got an astrological reading from somebody and the woman who was the astrologer was just like, Oh, you're a Sagittarius. And she said, you know, and she said, you are like this kind of stereotypical Sagittarian who will shoot an arrow, look off in the distance, target something in the distance, shoot an arrow, go galloping after it. And once you've gotten to where you where you've shot, then the arrows in it, you look at it, you pick up the arrow and you say, that's not what I wanted. And you find something else and you shoot an arrow and you go galloping off in the distance. And then you get there and you go, that's not what I wanted. And and so. <laughs> I have definitely afflicted with that and I always have goals and then the closer I get to the goal, the more it seems to almost disappear and not seem like it's there and I'm already focused on the next thing. So I have to make a really active effort to look at where I am, to realize that this, where I am now was the goal five years ago. And it's okay to have a new goal, but it's also really important to recognize that I did achieve what I set out to achieve. And so that's kind of a constant struggle for me. Where do you kind of see yourself in the next, I say the next five years? I mean, I know that you've mentioned these books that you're going to be doing, but do you see yourself still kind of traveling the speaker circuit? What's next for you? I see myself being more selective about where I go and how often I go to speak. My goal or my vision is to be doing work where I just I'm not moving around as much more stuff that I can kind of do from home, whether that's more online courses or more books or workshops like independent workshops or you know kind of retreats events stuff like that where it's something where i 
organized it and then I'm inviting people to come and do masterminds or something like that, I could see that happening. The travel that I've been doing last year, I, I by the time I got to the end of the year, I was like, this is absolutely not sustainable and I cannot do this. I cannot have the next year be like this last year at all. So I'm very proud of myself in the respect that so far I've only taken two trips for speaking this year. And the first one was five days and this last one was seven days. And the next one's only going to be three days. So I'm doing better that way. <laughs> and also I, I do, like I said, I love the, the speaking and the keynoting so much that um, I just hope to, you know, be even better at it than I am now and um, and to just touch more people with the message and to get more people inspired to be their best creative selves. Is there anywhere that you want to travel that you haven't been yet? You know, I haven't been, incidentally, with, with how close I am to it, I, I haven't been to Latin America at all. Okay. I would love to go to Brazil. I would love to go to Mexico. I would love to go to, you know, other countries, countries in Latin America. I also haven't been to Asia, and I would love to go to Asia. Uh, I would love to go to Bali and Singapore and Hong Kong and Japan and Thailand and, you know, Vietnam and places like that. Philippines would be great. India. I mean, you know, I want to go everywhere, essentially, <laughs> except for places that are extremely dangerous. Um, yeah. And even some places like I, I actually spoke in Israel two years ago in 2014. And I had a few people who were just like, oh, aren't you worried about going to Israel? And I was like, no. And I'm not going to spend my life being afraid of going places. Like mm -hmm. if there is like justifiable, like actual things being shot in the air, okay, I will not go. But it was like, if it's just, you know, there are certain places, I was like, ah, I'm not going to live my life being afraid. Yeah. So, and I loved Israel, by the way. Israel was awesome. <laughs> Best food ever. Best food. Really? Oh, my God. It was so good. <laughs> it was so good. I was just like every meal. I was like, what's going to happen next? <laughs> That's going to happen next. It was great. So, so yeah, so I, um, there's plenty of places that I would still love to go, you know, and I, I have friends all over the place that I would love to see and people that I've met that I would love to reconnect with. And so, you know, whatever comes, we'll see what happens. Well, Denise, just to kind of wrap up this interview, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So my website, denisejacobs.com. And that's where, if you're interested in finding out about the online speaker masterclass, Speak Up, you can go and sign up on my mailing list there at denisejacobs.com. There's a nice little drop down, little modal window drop down where you can sign up on my mailing list. Also, if you're interested in my book, Banish Your Inner Critic, you can go to denisejacobs.com slash inner critic and sign up on the book mailing list there. And also, I'm on Twitter. At Denise Jacobs is my handle, and I'm on Facebook, which is my fan page is denisejacobs.com, spelled out. I'm on all kinds of things, but those are good places to start. All right. Well, Denise, I know that you are doing a lot, and I know that this is kind of a 
a, a good period like between trips right now. But thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I mean, I think a lot of what you shared about your own journey, about like finding your strengths, mm -hmm. about kind of focusing on what it is that you want to do and how you've made a living out of it. I feel like that's going to resonate with so many people that might be sort of at a crossroads, mm -hmm. not necessarily when it comes to, I guess, you know, their career, but I think that's part of it. But also it's just, how do I get unstuck? Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like I'm at a place where I'm just in a rut. How do I get out of that? And so I think some of the things that you mentioned, and then of course, you know, your upcoming book are going to be really great tools that people can use to to really, you know, kind of get out of that and, and do bigger and better things. So Yay. thank you again so much for coming on the show. I really do appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Thoughts of love are in your mind. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Denise Jacobs and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Denise and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as designing tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook Design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion of buying and managing your domain. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It not only helps us get new listeners, it helps us move up the podcast rankings for design, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work Revision Path is doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level started just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.